invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 19. If you're just joining us today, we are in the midst of a series of messages walking through not all 150 of them, but some of the Psalms, exploring this collection of uh, prayers. This was a prayer book for God's people, has been for centuries, and so this morning we are going to be looking at Psalm 19. number of years ago, this is quite a long time ago now, uh, I was serving a church in British Columbia as a youth pastor. And uh, back then, pre-COVID, one of our routines on Friday nights was after our youth night that generally happened at the church building, we would be uh, invited to the home of someone in the church where they would serve the kids snacks and we'd hang out for a little while together. And uh, this one particular Friday night, I remember at the end of the youth night at the church building, we went to a home. I don't remember whose home it was, but I remember uh, being in the basement, and the walls were a pale gray. I remember that. There was a ping-pong table in one section, and leaned up against the wall at the end of the ping-pong table were uh, one or two foamy mattresses. And as you can imagine, with a a whole gang of junior high and high school students, that became an area of lots of activity, playing ping pong, and then the mattresses came down and people would wrestle around on them. And somehow, in the course of the events, I don't remember all the particulars, but I ended up finding myself on a mattress that got flipped over, so I was kind of sandwiched in it and had probably about a dozen junior high and high school kids sitting on me um, with my feet sticking out. Now, one quick aside, I have terribly ticklish feet. And the youth in my youth group knew that. And so uh, as I was laying there, weighed down with all these youth piled on top of this mattress, pinning me to the ground, uh, someone saw my feet sticking out and they thought, hey, let's tickle them. I I I remember that feeling of being completely helpless. I I could do, all I could do was yell. All I could do was cry out for mercy. We don't like that sense of helplessness. We we don't. Like, we we want to be self-sufficient. We want to be self-reliant. We want control. We want independence. It is tough to find oneself in a place of complete, total helplessness. Though it may not be immediately obvious when we turn to Psalm 19, the psalm we're looking at this morning is a prayer of helplessness. The psalmist sees what is true. He sees what's true about God. He sees what's true about himself. And he sees what's true about the situation in which he finds himself. And he cries out to God in prayer, a prayer of helplessness to the the only one who can be his help. I want you to follow along as I read this morning Psalm 19, a prayer of helplessness. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. 
The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise and simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I want to explore this text with you this morning by asking three questions. Uh, First, what have we received from God? Second, what problem do we face? And third, what solution are we offered? What have we received from God? What problem do we face? And what solution are we offered? But first, a couple preliminaries. Uh, C.S. Lewis called this psalm, Psalm 19, he said, is the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. Now, I imagine... Uh, many of you will have recognized at least portions of this psalm. This psalm is the foundation, it is the basis for many, many hymns. So if you've grown up in the church, if you are uh, familiar with hymns, if that was part of your, your past, your Christian heritage, then you will no doubt have sung many hymns that are based on portions of this psalm, Psalm 19. Now, it may not be the most well-known psalm, but it is quite well-known. I would contend it is probably in the top ten of best-known psalms. Secondly, I just want to highlight what probably was obvious to you, whether you're familiar with this psalm or whether you are hearing it today for the first time, and that is that there is within this psalm a dramatic shift of focus. Verses 1 to 6 is proclaiming one thing, speaking of one thing, and then suddenly at verse 7, it seems to completely shift direction. In fact, some scholars uh, wonder whether this might have been two psalms that have been put together. Now, I don't believe that's the case, and I believe that our study this morning will make that clear. The text makes perfect sense as it stands, but I mention that because that probably is jarring and certainly noticeable that there is this this apparent dramatic shift in this psalm. So let's turn now to the first of the three questions that we want to ask this morning. Question number one, what have we received from God? What this psalm makes clear to us as we read this text is that what we have received from God is revelation. Uh, Revelation from God revelation about God. And what this psalm also makes clear is that God's revelation comes to us in two ways. Thus, the two distinct movements of this psalm, verses 1 to 6, and then this shift to the second mode of revelation, verses 7 to 11. Now, we're going to look at each of those separately. Let's turn first to verses 1 to 6. Verses 1 to 6 speak of God as the creator and of creation as bearing witness to God's glory. We read, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the works of his hands, the work of his hands. That is, we have here the paradox of wordless speech. 
God's creation declaring, God's creation proclaiming. No speech, no words, no voice, and yet there is proclamation. Heavens do declare, they do give voice. God's creation bears witness to the glory of God. Now more is said. The witness of creation is is not sporadic. It's not occasional. It's not inconsistent. David writes this. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. Look at the language of verse 2. Pour forth speech. Literally gushes. Uh, Picture a spring bubbling up with, with fresh water. Water pouring out. God's creation gushes out. It bubbles out. Pours forth speech proclaiming the glory, the beauty, the majesty, the power, the the transcendence of God who has created all things and who is above all things. James May writes this, the imagination is in the midst of an unending concert sung by the universe to the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. I love being out in nature. I love creation. I find it so worshipful. And I could point to so many moments in my life. I remember in college, I had moved from the center of the universe to BC and went to Bible school and spring break. Spring break, me and a buddy jumped in my car and we thought, let's, let's go to the Pacific coast. And we drove down the Oregon coast. And I remember seeing the ocean for the first time. I remember crawling up on rocks and just seeing the surf, the giant waves thundering in. And I just remember being moved to worship. Is God is the creator of all that. God is the more powerful than anything we see, is more beautiful than anything we can behold. Many of you perhaps have watched the BBC documentaries, Planet Earth. They didn't know it when they made them, but, but th- that's just an invitation to worship. Verses 4 to 6, David draws our attention specifically to part of creation, that is the greatest heavenly body, the sun, which he poetically personifies. The sun lives in the sky, that is, in a tent that God has pitched for it. And he uses two similes to to emphasize the passionate energy of the sun that God has created, a bridegroom leaping from his chamber, a champion rejoicing to run his race. Something really important to note here is is that David is making this point. He, He speaks of the glory of the sun, and yet he makes it clear that the Son is not a God. He leaves no room for the pantheism of the pagan world around him. No, the Son is glorious, but it is, it is a glorious thing that points to the glory of the one more glorious, the one who created it, God Almighty. The theological term for what we see in verses 1 to 6 is general revelation. It is what Paul speaks of in Romans 1 where we read, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. God has revealed Himself. He has revealed His glory. He's revealed His beauty. He's revealed His majesty. He's revealed His power in the creation that we find ourselves living in. Many in our world today have come to believe a pernicious lie that science, the study of the world, the study of the material world around us and Christian faith are at loggerheads, that you can't be a woman of science and a person of faith, that you can't be a man of science and a person of faith. I want to say to you this morning that that is 
debunk that that is complete nonsense. Scriptures make it clear that God has created the world. And as we will see in a moment when we turn to verse 7 and following, that God has given us his word. God is the author of both the world and his word. Two books, if you will. And if we understand them both correctly, there will be no disagreement. And so that simply means that where there seems to be a contradiction as we study the world God has made it and made and, and the word that God has given us, then we simply misunderstand one or both. When it comes to creation, God as creator, James, James Montgomery Boyce writes this, the inescapable conviction of today's scientific community is that the universe did indeed have a beginning, if you've explored these things. As science tries to figure out how the world came to be, they've, they've come, this, this conviction, inescapable conviction, is that the universe did indeed have a beginning. It points to a creator. He goes on and writes this. Many scientists did not like this discovery because it pointed to God and to a moment of creation beyond which they could not and would never be able to penetrate. And even when we study the world, it points to a beginning, it points to a creator. Robert Jastrow, the founder of, and director of NASA's Goddard Institute for the Study of Space, concludes, this, uh, concludes his book, God and the Astronomers, with this witty paragraph. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. And as he pulls himself over the rock, he's greeted by a band of theologians who've been sitting there for centuries. The study of the world, the study of creation, reveals the glory of God. That's what we see here in verses 1 to 6. What have we received from God? We've received revelation. We've received the revelation of his glory, of his majesty, of his power, of his beauty. The sun and the stars and the mountains and the oceans and every created being points to the glory of God. But that is only part of what we receive. That's only part of the answer to the question, what have we received? And here is where we encounter this dramatic shift. Verse 7. Verses 1 to 6 speaks of God's general revelation through creation, the revelation of his glory. Verses 7 to 11, the psalm shifts our attention from the glory of God revealed in creation to the goodness of God's written revelation, the law, scriptures. See, general revelation awakens us to the glory and majesty and power of God, our creator. But no one, it will not awaken us to some very important things that we need to hear. No one will ever look at a mountain or at a sunset or at the surf breaking on shore of the sea. No one will ever look at that and, and, and jump to the conclusion, I shouldn't be living the way I'm living. I shouldn't be doing these things that I'm doing. I should live differently. No one will look at creation and come to those conclusions. They will not know those things. General revelation does not tell us how to live before God, only that we do live before God. To know how to live before God, we need a different kind of knowledge, a different kind of revelation. We need what we call special revelation. We need God to speak. And God has. God gave his law. God gave us his word. 
And beginning in verse 7, we find six different terms that are employed by David the psalmist speaking of God's written word, God, the, the law of the Lord, the statutes of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commands of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, the decrees of the Lord. All of these function synonymously speaking to, uh, speaking of God's law, that is uh, God's God's com- it's a comprehensive term speaking to God's revealed will. We can say the Bible. These are synonyms pointing to God's revealed will. Now what we find in these three verses, verses 7 to 9, is these six synonyms pointing us to God's written word, God's revealed will. And then we find six adjectives describing God's word. And then we find six Statements of effect, what God's word does. God's word is perfect. That is, it's not deficient in any way. God's word is trustworthy. It corresponds with reality. God's word is right. It is good and beyond question. It is radiant. It illumines the path that we should walk. It is pure. That is, it is untainted. It is firm. It endures. It's described with all these these adjectives to describe the glory, the goodness of God's word. And then the wonderful effects of God's word are spelled out too. God's word refreshes the soul. You need refreshment? Are you beaten down? Go to God's word. God's word will refresh you. God's word makes wise the simple. Do you lack wisdom? Go to God's word. And even the simplest man or woman, you don't need an education, come to God's word and God will give you wisdom. Uh, It gives joy to the heart. We, we look for joy in all kinds of things. This is the source of joy, God's word. It gives light to the eyes. It shows us how we are to live before God. God's word is declared to be more precious than gold, sweeter than honey. It is of supreme value. It is of greatest worth. It is the most marvelous thing that we can behold. David says in verse 11 about God's word, by them, that is by God's words, Your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. That is, God's word shows us how to live before him. We're warned about what we are to avoid, and we are told of the the rewards that come with obeying, with submitting to God's word. So what have we received? We've received revelation. We've received general revelation. We've, We've received the revelation of God's glory in creation. And we've received special revelation. God's equipping us to obey and live well before him. What what a marvelous reality. God has shown us his gloriousness. And God has shown us uh, how to live rightly before him. What more could we want? What more could we need? Well, it's at this point that we turn to our second question. What problem do we face? At verse 12, it seems things suddenly fall apart. And this is not what we're expecting as readers of this psalm. The the mood of the psalm at this point has been one of awe and delight. Awe at the glory of God, delight in the word of God. And then we come to this. David says, but who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. And maybe you are asking the question, where did that come from? What's up, David? Where did that come from? See, here's what we need to see at this point in this text. David understands three critical things. David understands first, he understands that he lives before an awesome, awesome, majestic, glorious God who has revealed himself 
in creation and who has spoken through his word. Second, he understands that he is called to live rightly before God and that that means obeying God's law, God's word, God's special revelation. And third, he understands that he doesn't. And he doesn't do what he's supposed to do, that he, that he can't, in fact. Look with me at verse 12. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Do you, do you see what he's saying? Who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. What's he, what does he mean when he says hidden faults? I mean, he, he's not saying that there are things in his life that are hidden from God. God sees all. David is confessing his inability. He, he's not just his inability to obey God and all that God calls him to, but he's confessing his inability to even figure out all the ways in which he's screwing up. He speaks of hidden faults. Those are, those are his faults that he doesn't even see. I remember when I was around 20, I met regularly with a, a mentor, an older Christian man, a spiritual father of sorts in my life. And I remember at one point sharing with him and just talking about the struggle with lust. And, and I remember sharing that and wrestling with that. And, and I remember him, him saying something to me that completely shocked me, surprised me. Just, I didn't. He said, Dennis, what if there's something else in your life that God is even more concerned about right now? Now, he wasn't saying that lust wasn't an issue that we're not supposed to flee, not by any means. But he was pointing out that there may well be things that displease God in my life that I wasn't even aware of. See, some things are easy for us to see. They're obvious. And we can focus on those. But David's point is here, God, I don't even know how all I've gone off the rails. I can't even see it. They're hidden to me. I, I'm violating your law. I'm living in ways that are... Uh, offensive to you, and I don't even see it, Lord. Who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. And he carries on. He says, keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. See, not only does David understand that he sins in ways that he doesn't even fail, that he, that he fails to see or recognize, he also confesses that sometimes, despite God's revelation, despite the fact that he sees in the world around him the glory, the awe, the majesty of God, despite the fact that God has revealed himself in his word, which is good and beautiful and beneficial to all who live by it, despite God's revelation, despite the fact that David sees that, he knows there are times where he chooses to disobey. He chooses sin when he knows that he shouldn't, that it doesn't make sense to make that choice. And then perhaps this reminds you of what Paul writes in Romans 7, verse 15, where we read this, I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do I do not do, but what I hate I do. Now, if you've studied that text, you're probably aware of some of the scholarly debate about how to rightly understand it. And just, I'll sketch it briefly. On the one hand, there are people who say, well, this is a picture of, 
uh, the Christian life struggling against sin, indwelling sin. And on the other side, there are people who say, no, this, this point in Romans, in the argument of Romans, Paul's actually... Uh, using a rhetorical device, he's speaking from the perspective of someone who has not come to faith in Christ. One of my frustrations when I studied in graduate school was, was having godly, wise professors who would not agree with each other on things. And I encountered that on this. Two of my professors, uh, J.I. Packer and Gordon Fee, brilliant, godly, wise men, and they came down on different sides here. And I thought, oh, Lord, what, what do I take? In fact, it was kind of amusing. Every once in a while, scholars will publish a book in honor of a professor. And so on the occasion of Gordon Fee's 65th birthday, they wrote a book. Different academics would put in chapters. They wrote it on Romans. And J.I. Packer, his colleague, wrote on this chapter, <laughs> contending why Gordon was wrong in honor of Gordon. Gordon said, no, he, he believes in the flow of Romans that Paul is, is speaking from the perspective of someone apart from Christ, that this is the experience of, of someone who is not a Christian, that they can't obey. But, but, but here, I remember Gordon saying, he said, despite the fact that that's what I think Romans says, even so, every one of us as a Christian understands this experience. And so no matter how you come out on Romans 7, 15, this is part of our experience, even for those of us who are in Christ, that sometimes as Christians, we willfully make sinful choices. We act according to the flesh, that sometimes we act in a way that is completely incongruent and inconsistent with our identity as new creations in Christ. David saw that. He knows the warnings. He knows the benefits of obedience. He, he knows the glory and majesty of God. He's been moved to awe before God. And yet he also knows that sometimes he fails to live the way he should. Sometimes that he willfully chooses to do otherwise. And so he confesses this to God. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Despite all that he has received from God. God's revelation of his glory in creation. The, the, God's revelation of God's good ways for us to live. The benefits of it and the warnings of going astray. David realizes that he is incapable of the kind of obedience called for. The kind of obedience that is required. And that's a problem. So what does he do? What can he do? What can you and I do when we find ourselves for, we find ourselves in the same position as David? And that leads us to the third question: What solution are we offered? Look at verse thirteen, the last part of verse thirteen. David says, "Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression." When is the then? What's the then pointing to? Then, like, when is then? What is then? Referring to it, it points back to God's forgiveness. It points back to God's empowerment to avoid being ruled by willful sins. Look at what we read earlier in verse 13. Forg verse 12. Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. He cries out to God for grace. He cries out to God for forgiveness. And he cries out for God to protect him from sins ruling over him. That is, God, you need to empower me so that I'm not ruled by sin. Lord, I need your help. 
Tremper Longman III writes this, David realizes that he does not have the resources to know himself or to control himself completely, so he wisely asks God to help him. David cries out to God for help. David cries out and asks God for help. He knows that God is his only hope, that that he is in need of grace and mercy to pardon him for sin, sin that he doesn't even see in his life, and that he needs God's power to obey the law, that apart from God's empowerment, that he's going to be ruled by sin, that he is incapable on his own, he is helpless in the face of this reality in which he finds himself, despite the fact that God has revealed his glory and revealed his good way. Righteousness cannot come, cannot be attained by obedience to the law. Paul writes this in Romans 3.20. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Bruce Walkie and James Houston write this. David's response exemplifies the appropriate response. Prayer for salvation, not a resolve to obey, as one might expect. David's response is that of the tax collector. God, be merciful to me. A sinner. God be merciful to me, a sinner. David prays for help. Psalm 19 is a prayer of helplessness. David can't do it. And neither can you. And neither can I. Despite, despite God's revelation, despite the glory of God being evident to us, despite the wonder and the awe before his majesty, his glory, his power, despite that, and despite the goodness of his written word that, that shows us the, the benefits of it, that shows us that is good, that gives us joy, that gives us light, that, that refreshes our soul, despite all of that, we cannot do what we're called to do. And so David concludes his prayer with these words, Lord, my rock, my Redeemer, he cries out for help from the one who alone can help. David needed a Redeemer. And you and I need a Redeemer, and that Redeemer has come. The person of Jesus Christ, a descendant of David, another king. A king who would come and do for us what we could never do for ourselves. A king who would willingly, joyfully, out of love for you and out of love for me, would die the death that we deserve. Who would suffer God's wrath, his just punishment for our sin, for our rebellion, hidden or willful. All that we do, everywhere where we've gone wrong, Jesus paid the price. He drank the cup of God's wrath to the very last dregs. Not only that, but through faith in Christ, we are clothed with his perfection. He's the only one who lived rightly before God, who lived a perfect life of obedience and submission to the Father. And through faith in Christ, we are clothed, we are covered with his perfection. Not only that, but in fact, through faith, we are filled with his spirit, Christ comes, and we are brought into union with him. Christ lives in us. In Galatians 2.20, for I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. John 15.5, apart from me you can do nothing. The Christian life is an impossible life. It is not a life that you and I can live by pulling up our socks and exerting a little more effort. No, it is a life that is impossible for us. We need help. We need salvation. We need Christ. And when we put our faith in Christ, we are forgiven. We are clothed with his perfection. We are filled with his spirit. We are brought into union with Christ. And Christ lives the life 
out of us. We live in union with Christ. And Christ's power at work in us. Christ's life in us brings transformation. Not in this life will we get to that place of perfection, but Christ, as we surrender to him, as we learn to abide in him, as we learn to allow him to live his life out, our lives will be transformed. But it is only by leaning on him, looking to him as our help, our rock, our redeemer. If you leave this place and you say, I'm just going to try a little harder. I'm just going to buckle down a little bit more effort, a little bit more resolve. It won't work. We are helpless. We need a rock and a redeemer. We need a helper. We need a savior. We need Jesus. So this psalm, this prayer, this marvelous poem, prayer, declaration, drips of the gospel. It shows us the incredible glory of God. And it shows us the incredible goodness of his word. And it shows us our deep need for a savior whom we receive in Christ. If you are with us this morning, you have never trusted Christ, I want you to know that the Christian life is not a life that you can live by your own effort. That Christianity is not about being good enough, about being a good person. It's, it's about recognizing our absolute helplessness and crying out to Jesus who alone is our help. And I invite you to do that today. Cry out to him. Confess your sin like David and say, Jesus, I need help. You are my rock. You are my redeemer. I turn my life over to you. Come and live in me. Come and do your work in me. Transform me. Live out of me. For those of us who are in Christ, this is a powerful, necessary reminder of what our life in Christ is about. It is life in Christ, in union with Christ, letting Christ work in us. It is looking to him daily, moment by moment, saying, Jesus, you are my rock and my redeemer. Help me. I can't do this apart from you. And you can't. You know that. I know that. We must keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. We must daily, moment by moment, pray this prayer. Jesus, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen.